Hello friends, my name is Lauren, and this is the Subnormal Podcast, a podcast where I interview artists and talk to them about not only their artistic work, but their spiritual practices to learn how both of those things influence each other. Today's artist is Eden, and I am very excited to share them because not only are they an artist and a tattooer, they are also into herbalism. They're an herbalist. They are a musician, a singer, an activist, and a self-published author. So today we cover all sorts of subjects, but just one little warning before the episode starts, there is a trigger warning involved. So if you are made uncomfortable by subjects that include self-harm, please be aware that that is included. We don't go into detail, however, it is a part of Eden's journey, and so I think it's important to include it So with that said, to find Eden's work, I recommend following them on Instagram. You can check them out on many places, but two places in particular I'll just give you right off the bat. Prophecy Canvas on Instagram is one way of finding their activism work. Their tattoo work is on Sacred Pokes. So make sure to check them out there. To describe Eden's work, I would say it's very esoteric channeled, very sweet and soft. There's elements of their drawings that are incredibly gentle while kind of infusing this very esoteric channeled energy. I actually have two tattoos from Eden on myself, so definitely recommend checking them out. But with that said, let's just dive into it. Uh, currently, I am working on one thing that I'm really excited about is I just joined a studio in Fishtown called Vitality. Um, I'm their in-house herbalist now. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. <laughs> um, and my um, partner there, Haley, um we are starting a garden in the back and are going to do some like mutual aid things around it. Um, probably connect with some other local organizations to do some survivor advocacy connected to said garden. Um, so I'm just like extremely stoked about that. Uh, it was just like two days ago or so that we went and did the first like big clear and started planting some things that'll make it through the winter. Um, Yeah. Another thing that I'm working on is creating my first ebook into a print book. Um, So non-binary healing practices should actually be on the shelves within the next couple months instead of just on my website, which is Mm -hmm. sacredcanvas.org. And, uh, I've had some pretty awesome and pretty terrible experiences as a writer, so this feels like reconstituting that and mm-hmm. um, reclaiming my voice, especially considering that like coming out um, as non-binary, as an androgynous person has taken many years to like 
fully embody. I think I came out like three times just about my gender identity. <laughs> mm. um, so at the end of the day, it's really liberating to be able to share not only about how my own lineage has had its own interface of gender, um, but that of others. So other folks can discover what their own genes may be holding around uh, gender adaptability, too. And when you say your lineage, I'm curious, what is your lineage exactly? Because I think that's a really interesting thing to get into. Um, so I'm actually going <laughs> to start this off with a quote that somebody said to me recently. Um, I was working with a favorite healer of mine named Alex March. I highly recommend her. And um, a message that she received and then gave to me was, I know you're doing a lot of work and a lot of research about your lineage right now, but it's important for you to know that you're actually creating your own. Um, mm -hmm. And that feels like why I do that research to begin with. Uh, I started probably about a year ago looking into my ancestry because I'm estranged from my family. I don't really have like much of a connection in that mm -hmm. regard. So like my spiritual relationship to the ancestors that are actual allies has been a supplement for me. Um, so I started looking back through my Ukrainian ancestry and found a lot of different new avenues there that I didn't completely have a grasp of before. Um, I have done some digging with my Scottish ancestry and found that there is some Pictish um, ancestry in me, which is awesome because the Picts are like, one of my favorite things to talk about. They're so freaking cool. They're like one of the only people that were successfully able to fight off the Roman genocide um, and basically like reverse engineered their war tactics. But even better is that they were like near nudists who were tattooed like literal neck to toe. Um, so they basically like go out into these battlefields in almost nothing, just like chains and a pelt. And then they would be painted in blue indigo on top of their tattoos. So it was just like, <laughs> it really had to be a sight to behold. And I um, feel really connected as a tattoo artist, as somebody who like ritualizes body art to that particular lineage. Um, they were earth worshiping pagans, so like that runs deep. Um, I also have Druidic ancestry, which is something that I feel very strongly that needs like new vocality. Um, the Neo-Druidism sect of practice of spirituality of even heritage tends to be really patriarchal and like because a lot of our records were destroyed and because our people were killed and because our languages were destroyed um like our people were literally buried face down and that was so that their stories their voices wouldn't carry on so basically what's happened now is just like 
all of these European straight men are just like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to build this up. I've talked about this before too. Um, but they kind of like use it as a pedestal. Um, and I feel like it's really important for people to know that like, there are fucking queer druids out here. There, (laughs) there are people who are not white who were druids. I mean, it was a whole nation. That that's mm. why they were a threat, and the reason that they don't exist in the way that they did is because they were simply nonviolent. Like they didn't have a militia in the same way that we would understand a militia um, to counteract the violence that was coming towards them from the Romans. So, <laughs> long answer to what my lineage is. Um, those are like some of the three main points. I'm actually discovering a lot more right now uh, of things that I didn't quite know, like things that I was told that I was, that I wasn't, things that I wasn't told that I am. Um, So that's really exciting. I want to encourage everybody with this question to like take the time to sit with what they've been told and then actually go and do research. it's really important like you won't know your magic until you know where you actually come from i love that and i think that's so powerful making that note as well as this there's a lot of stories in our lineage that are told to us and like at this point we are at a place where we can debunk those there's ways of finding out like ah yes i had a grandmother that grew up in Oklahoma, but yes, she was not any relation to any indigenous folks there. So like where we can kind of see that situation, that shift. I'm just saying that because that's a literal thing that happened this last year. My mom took a DNA test and I was curious because in my family's lineage, it was, oh, your grandmother has Native American in her, uh, in her lineage. And I always was like, does she? And of course she didn't. My mom took a DNA test and it came up. Nope. So it was like, ah, so we have other things we can work with that are connected to us that allow Mm -hmm. us to have such deep understanding. I had no idea about this, this group of people that you're talking about either. It's super fascinating. How did you come across, how did you say it? The Picton? The Picts. Um, I came across the Picts because I started doing a body of research on Samhain, uh, spelled Samhain, aka Halloween, and where it really came from. Um, and then through that, I ended up like surfacing on the Picts because, like, for me personally, um, I really associate body art with kind of like going beyond the veil it's a psychopomp in a sense um and that is literally the purpose of Sawain. Mm-hmm. so lo and behold um i went and started doing a bunch of research on like pre-colonial europe and ran into how the picts related to their gods and goddesses and um landed on their tattooing ritual practices, and then looped that all back in together. Um, Eventually, (laughs) and when I say eventually, what I really mean is rather impulsively, 
because that's how I tend to create. Um, that essay that I wrote about the Picts and Sawain ended up being complemented by an EP, Reclaiming Sawain is Sacred, and it's on my Bandcamp, uh, mm. EdenMusic.Bandcamp.com. So those two together are kind of like an homage to not only um, how these practices translate through me, but in hopes that other people will be able to feel empowered in like going a little bit deeper and actually finding their magic. I love that. And so as you've been working on uh, your book, is that kind of where you, did, was it kind of a beautiful merger for you where you got to explore not only your lineage, but also this idea of what is non-binary? Because for, it feels like non-binary is a concept that's barely a decade old in the zeitgeist, but it really is like ancient. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I personally feel as though the concept of non-binary is creator essence, just mm. at, at the core. Um, being an ordained priestess, like, and I was living as a cis woman while this was happening, kind of like stewing in my own identity um, dissolution. Uh, mm. What they teach you is that, oh, it's the womb that, that is the creator of all. And like, okay, sure, we are born in this way as we know it. But like, how are we going to account for all of these different birthing expressions that exist in our universe like if we're born of the earth like the earth doesn't actually have a gender it's conceptualized as having a gender but like is not and if we are of it then like that is its own non-binary creation energy and if you look back with gods and goddesses goddesses from almost any lineage you will find that their creator deity is usually a creatrix and what a creatrix is is an androgynous being so mm. um like a lot of self-generation to create rather than having like two parties man and woman to create something is inherent within a lot of spiritual ideologies and that's been like very erased so if you go back between like the idea of a deity and now we can also find these variant gender expressions in again almost every culture um a lot of languages have been specifically catered <laughs> to not be gendered languages the way that we're speaking in english um you know we typically resort to he or her or we will project gender on certain objects um but that isn't what it's like in say armenian it's not a gendered language. Uh, so understanding things like that tend to really open up the possibilities of how we can see ourselves and then start to like 
break down the system of binary gender that is basically just a classification system. Uh, it's not really truly for our benefit because its only concern is objectification and reproduction. And that, that alone, like if you look at a person and you make that judgment before you get to know them, you're literally trying to think about their genitals, um, which is kind of weird and fucked up and says a lot about the way that society has been sexualized for some kind of profit. Um, and when you go back and you look through these lineages, what you can start to find is that not only are these languages um, reflecting of something deeper, but a lot of the ways that traditional ritualistic or ceremonial practices began was through the hands of femmes and queer folks. So, uh, something really trippy relevant to this happened to me uh, as I was doing research for this book as well. And my name is a chosen name. I have a dead name that I don't use anymore. And that name helped me to a certain point. But after a certain point, it really like dissolved in being a safe and embracing term for me to use to refer to myself. So. Enter Eden, E-E-D-E-N, kind of like the garden. <laughs> mm. And what felt really strong for me about this name is that, and I promise this all connects, <laughs> <laughs> is that the extra intonation in the beginning, the extra E, like, focalizes the reverberation of that vowel. And the way that a lot of our proto-languages have been developed is off of a very baseline understanding around toning that becomes a ritual and becomes a science to these people. Uh, so the way my Druidic ancestors, for example, developed their language is they would tone relevant to different trees and then that would be the names of the trees. It would be A, O, A, and that would create a map system for them. From that map system, it became a divination tool that would tell them where to go, how to move their villages nomadically, that kind of thing. And then it became a language. So there's so much magic in the tonation to begin with. This comes back into queerness and identity um, also being a super magical thing. Because what happened to me through the process of this book is realizing that I accidentally named myself <laughs> after what my lineage calls my gender. So if you, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, so if you scroll back in the Eurasian steppe, which is where my Ukrainian blood is from. They weren't specifically just from Ukraine, but Ukraine is like the landing point <laughs> for a lot of my ancestors there. And then they were kind of like scattered throughout Russia and like other parts of Germanic areas. Um, so the Eurasian steppe is also really famous for having some extremely potent magic. Also sometimes being really cold, but you know, 
it's okay. So the Scythians were one of the, like, I don't want to say pre-civilization because even the word, like, civil feels very colonizer to me, but, like, pre-formal society, the Scythians were the nomads of a large portion of that area, and they were Ukrainian, they were... Armenian, they, like, and pretty much between there, like, they just had this massive, massive nation that would go wherever, and they were a, um, warrior nation as well, so specifically adverse to the Druids, (laughs) they were specifically centered around training people, and, their magical practitioners were called the NRE or the NRA, spelled E-N-A-R-E-E or E-N-A-R-E-I. And that literally translates to androgynous healing practitioner. Straight up. And this wow. is like thousands of years old. So in that spelling with the double E intonation and then another E, I was like, I, I accidentally and unknowingly named myself after what an Anari is. Um, and that rocked wow. my world. So that really changed my life uh, through the research for this book and is like even more fuel for that to get passed on to whoever else can benefit from that medicine, which I don't necessarily think is just queer people like straight cisgendered people can still benefit from the understandings of non-binary fluid gender traversing energy because it's a skill to exist outside of that binary. So developing a relationship with that, no matter who you are, expands how people can even perceive of magic in the first place. And that's why, that's why the queers are, have been the healing practitioners in many different cultures that you can start to look through. And a lot of that is the content of the book. Wow. That is some really juicy, interesting information, honestly. It really, because this is the sort of stuff that you don't really, you don't really, you don't learn it in world history or any sort of context like that. We have no going into the 20th century and 21st century, no context for a lot of this information. So it's really Mm -hmm. interesting to hear it. I was about to ask what was the most like interesting culture that you researched. Was that kind of it? Was that kind of the like aha moment for you? Or has there been like several that kind of like played an interesting role in your conception of the book? Mm. Um, that they're all kind of tied. Like I don't have one favorite. I just have what resonates with certain parts of me or certain parts of like this ideology more than others in their own little compartments. So, (laughs) um, another one that was really powerful, um, would be the Mesopotamian non-binary culture. Mm. So, Essentially, Inanna, 
uh, also Ishtar, and there are a couple other names for her, um, is a moon goddess of the Sumerians, Akkadians, Mesopotamian is the umbrella term. Um, and <laughs> God, if I were a God, <laughs> I would want to be worshipped like Inanna was worshipped because they had it down pat. Anyway, not that I actually want to be a God. I'm, I'm pretty decently okay with being human for the time being, but... <laughs> They knew what they were doing. Uh, they created a sect of non-binary priests of people who who were born with, you know, whatever sex uh, alignment, uh, be it born female, born male, or assigned that at birth. Rather, um, are people who are intersex could enter this priesthood called the gala or uh, sometimes it was called the Kugara. And I'm sure there's a few other names for it as well. But they were the ones who tended dominantly to Inanna. Um, they would do some like pretty intense body modification rituals as well to like honor her, which I mean, <laughs> Some things I don't think I would go necessarily that far, but as a body artist myself, I can certainly appreciate it and see the use for pain as a transcendental tool. Um, and then the gala were also a support to the high priestess and the most famous high priestess of the Temple of Inanna is Enheruana, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm pretty sure I am but I am not a Sumerian linguist, so. <laughs> yeah. Nonetheless, um, and Heruana is actually the first recorded author that we have in our current documentation of society at all. Yes. Wow. So she was a high priestess, uh, basically like the captain of this temple, and um was a poet and a queer and she would write like basically erotic poetry about Inanna which is super cool um and song and intonation was also a huge part of how they practiced and how they worshiped so all of these things that we're talking about with intonation and um gender fluidity as like really a primary perspective in relating to what is on the other side or through the veil or the occult, whatever you want to call it. Um, it all ties together really nicely and it's awesome. It is so awesome to be able to literally trace that back to the first person who ever put their name on their writing. Mm, that is crazy. Yeah, I actually am working on a painting of her right now to honor her, and it's in the other room. But that'll that'll be exciting to show whenever it's completed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Has there been? I feel like as you've been talking, you've brought up tattooing. You brought up this sort of layer. How has this work that you've been doing, besides this 
painting that you're working on come up for you creatively outside of just the writing? Has it also kind of come up with your style of art that you're making? Is it influencing um, the type of art you're making or even the tattoos you're designing? Absolutely. I can't separate it from the way that I perceive the world. And mm -hmm. I mean, at this point, now I've come to be able to understand it as like some kind of concrete concept, um, even in its, <laughs> even in its ever-changing ambivalent nature, I still have these like core values around the way that I interact with the impact of art. And that revolves around identity, that revolves around safety, which safety revolves around identity too. That revolves around connection, whether it be intimacy, whether it be to lineages, whether it be to ourselves, our inner child, the universe. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it's something that could ever be taken out of any creative thing that I do, honestly. Um, in the way that I paint, in the way that I work with the herbs, in the way that I tattoo, like it's become such a massive foundation to be able to have all of these aforementioned understandings be at the center. Because that that's that's what's differentiated me. That's what has carried me through it. And that's what makes me want to persist and be able to offer what I do. Um, because I know I'm not the only person like this out here. And mm -hmm. I know what it's like to be displaced. So the way that art has become the sanctuary for me for so much trauma, um, for being a survivor, for just even mourning, it's also given so much life. And I, I just want to... I want a big hug of art <laughs> for just <laughs> every magical queer person in the world. <laughs> um, yeah, and as for the actual designs or styles, um, when I tattoo, which I like to call imprinting, mm -hmm. when I'm imprinting, I don't use a machine for those who don't know I can and like I will if somebody really desperately wants me to use one but I simply don't prefer it because I don't feel the energetic is exchange is as present as with hand poking which again is more inherent to the way that my ancestors literally did it um mm -hmm. the Picts did not have tattoo machines <laughs> um, uh as I am doing that what happens to my body is something where like even though i'm creating art in probably like the most physical way that one person possibly could because you're implanting it into another human being i feel like my body kind of turns into this like energetic puddle and for me that is how i know i'm in my like peak conduit moment and because of that and because of the way that my practice operates um more often than not I like for my designs to be 
very up to interpretation in a similar way. Um, like I'll often design shapes that you can't really define. Sure, it's abstract, but it's also, you know, not just blobs on a canvas. Not that there's mm -hmm. anything wrong with that. Shout out to Jackson Pollock. Um, but it's often very geometric and uh, takes from ideas of sacred geometry, but leaves the ones that tend to be really problematic amongst that community. Um, so there's a hell of a lot of propaganda in that. But anyway, um, so these designs end up looking very like phallic and yonic at the same time. And then from that very unified picture what it brings out in people and what it's bringing out in me I feel like kind of connects similarly um so as that conduit I like to allow that open creatrixness <laughs> to really be chosen by whoever I'm working with uh so I'll call a lot of my designs like program yourself uh, because you're deciding the intent like I am giving a tattoo and when that is on your body it becomes your art not mine um, mm. which is another thing that I would love for more body artists to start feeling with and thinking through um, because there's a lot of transphobia homophobia sexism racism that the tattoo industry has been founded on like that that is literally how it was introduced to mainstream american culture it was stolen from queer indigenous people that were practicing they were ripped off then it was outlawed and then some sailors would come back and roll up to Hawaii with this stolen craft and then tattoo a bunch of racist, sexist, homophobic shit on other men. And uh, beyond design, I feel like that the idea of deconstructing how that honestly really a moral way of operating this craft um has come up like i don't want to see that that isn't safe space that isn't honoring to anybody whose body that you're interacting with you can't treat a literal bloodletting ritual that way mm -hmm. people shouldn't be uncomfortable when they roll into a studio to get something that means a lot to them and is literally going to be on their body for the rest of their lives. People shouldn't be going into tattooing just because they want to be a technician and literally get away with abuse. Like that's why a lot of people enter tattooing now. Um, so yes, uh, <laughs> to, to consecrate your question, <laughs> I feel like everything about androgynous magic everything about honoring the lineages of myself or others who i come across or others that like 
maybe even the oppressors in my lineage did wrong by, like really being able to flip the script and rewrite how we can support each other instead, that's at the core of basically anything that I could ever fathom creating. Yeah, that's so powerful. It's really, I know we've had the conversation in the past talking about basically, not even basically, but this very like overarching theme within tattooing, this like tattoo culture that is very much like an appropriation Mm -hmm. of where it was and where it is now. And so it's interesting to one, hear your, what you've been learning, what you've been taking from your studying and how it's just really deepening your convictions towards this, this uh, practice of yours. Thank you. Yeah. And I would love for you to share um, how you, your personal journey into tattooing got, because I feel like that's a very interesting place to even start going back to where, where you came from with that. <laughs> <Get ready. laughs> I buckle in everybody. <laughs> um, so I've been tattooing since I was about 16 and, um, it's changed a lot since I started in the industry in the community in the way that even like clientele bases relate to it. Um, I started piercing before I started imprinting and both of them have a really special place in my heart because they, they were essentially the ways that, um, I felt it was safe to train myself out of self-injury. Trigger warning, as a preteen and a child, I, due to surviving some like horrendous crap at the hands of my family and the people that they would bring around, um, I started self-injuring as a coping mechanism. And being the kid that has mental health issues plus is a total little punk (laughs) plus doesn't learn in the same way like is very clearly neurodivergent and is traumatized um kind of set me apart from my peers there weren't other queer people around until I got into like middle school um and for me to lean on art was the main thing that was my alternative. And then when I discovered that I could merge art, which I was very grateful and privileged to be able to learn from a super young age, um, despite all the terrible things that have been a direct result of my uh, blood relatives, at the same time, I was born into a family of artists, so it was easily passed on um, and became my, my like, main lifeblood. So being able to take that and how much it meant to me and what it got me through at a really young age, having to grow up way too fast and then infusing it with something that is rebellious and 
little did I know literally connects to my ancestry. <laughs> um, so is, is in my genes is in my body is in my memory. Um, that was so powerful. My voice is like getting even a little bit shaky thinking about it. Um, the first, it's hard to say like, cause I was self-taught, but I also had a handful of teachers. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's also hard to say what the first tattoo I had really was, uh, because there was a lot of experimentation, which honestly, I don't think is something that people should be ashamed of. I think the problem is that the industry is so patriarchal is so you can only do it this one way, literally because they're trying to protect something that is fucked up. Mm. and it's stolen, I think that prevents people who are going to experiment no matter what, which is also really natural for humans to do. It's what we've been doing for thousands of years. It's how we figured out how to even heal ourselves. Um, from there, like, people don't really get the education that they need to be able to do that kind of experimentation, which I think is an injustice. People should be able to relate to their bodies and express their bodies in a way that is safe and helpful and like you know makes them feel like themselves so uh due to my own experimentation there were a lot of different ways that i tried to approach body art um which i think also really set a precedent for my practice now that i I'm really proud of and have benefited from because it's allowed me to be adaptable and allowed me to see it outside of the box. Um, mm. <laughs> so I had a couple like quote unquote first tattoos. Um, but when I look back at them, all of those first tattoos, whether they stayed, whether they didn't, whether they're covered up now, they were all directly relevant to not only me moving through self-harm and leaving that behind, but they were also actually relevant to me rising above medical abuse. Um, throughout my recovery process as a survivor, I have dealt with the medical system and institutionalization more than one time and lo and behold, a lot of the people in that, not all of them, but a lot of the people in that tend to have been indoctrinated in a way that makes them really bitter and they don't do their jobs well. So there's a lot of medical abuse that does exist. And I'm saying this as a white person. So I want to make it very clear specifically for white listeners that whatever I'm explaining to you for black, brown, and indigenous people, like the medical bias and lack of treatment that they get is even worse. Um, so I had a few experiences where like I was handled really poorly or people would like touch me when they weren't supposed to or like I was addressed in a violent way um, or you know handled in a violent way and the way that I flipped that was through those first tattoos. Um, I was terrified of needles 
terrified because people had not to get too gory so content warning but like I had some needles stuck in me at very inappropriate times and very inappropriate places as a child. Um, and to instead take that into my own hands changed so much of the fear that I was carrying into the world. Um, so there's, in my opinion, just limitless ways that body art can really support people's growth can really support people in understanding themselves and specifically in moving through trauma. So that's what I specialize in. That's beautiful. I, how you've transformed that is amazing. It's very, it's a reclamation for sure. Very powerful and really goes to reflect your purpose as far as this, I remember getting my first tattoo from you in this conversation around imprinting, around it being a healing source, like really helped me frame it differently where it was like I was getting this tattoo because, you know, I was in a dark place and I wanted the, the, the alchemic symbol of the sun and gold on my body. Like how powerful is that, you know? And, but then having that conversation with you really helped even broaden like, oh, the intentionality can really expand and grow from there. As you've um, experienced lots of clients, what has kind of been, if you don't mind me asking, a client experience that really um, was really opening for it not being just about your healing, but someone else's? Oh, <laughs> well, first and foremost, thank you for your kind words. It's really awesome to hear that and exactly why I do this. Um, and I also want to say that it's not like just with client experiences. It's not just with um, people that I'm working hands on with all the time that this way of creating and this way of receiving can help change things. Um, and I want to preface talking about my transformative experiences with clients or even with receiving tattoos um, in the sacred way by saying that like, I have learned so much, probably more than anything that ever could have taught me um, from tattooing itself. Mm. And like, I was a kid when I started. So there, like, there were a lot of my own internalizations that I had to move through because I'd only ever been exposed to like a bastardized version of it. And mm. that was work that I had to do so I could show up appropriately in this role. And that, that work is never going to stop. But by virtue of that, I, I hope that it also invites other people to start thinking a little bit differently, to start thinking about, like, why this weird pseudo-culture is the way it is. Why it's funny, apparently, for Ink Master to literally just have people treating each other like crap and then 
you know, get rich and televised. Um, and more often than not, those are some like really mean people. <laughs> I can tell you firsthand. Um, so really for me, the transformation is in seeing how messed up stuff has gotten and how much that can change. Seeing that in my own body, my own emotional state as a result, and in the way that I show up as an advocate. Um, and extending that to my clients. I feel like I want to honor confidentiality, so I don't want to bring up any individuals, um, but I will say that some of my most transformational moments have been uh, working with plant spirits through body modification, whether it be working with their imagery or having them as an offering or even creating my own plant-based inks. Um, that has been, it, it's hard to even put words to it because not only are you working with your consciousness and the consciousness of somebody else in body, but you're also working with the consciousness of like the craft in and of itself is a lineage. I want people to understand that being a body artist is a lineage. That is how that people have been taught. And now when people are self-taught, like uh, my, my interview project, pretty much everybody that I've, I've interviewed that's a body artist has been like, oh yeah, I'm self-taught. And what's happening is they're doing this research, but what's happening underneath the lines is that their own ancestors are teaching them. It's genetic memory that, that brings this lineage of a tattooer. Um, and that's what I think the industry has become really disconnected from and why I've removed myself from it uh, <laughs> as much as I can. So that being said, being able to work with those plus the consciousness of a plant brings in another teacher because we've got our bodies to teach us. We've got those who we've descended from to teach us, but to bring in the energy of nature and learn from that directly is always really, really moving. Um, I can't eat corn anymore because I are like, I can in really small doses, um, which sucks because I love corn, but it's because I have um, a seizure condition and that's a result of CPTSD, childhood PTSD, better said. <laughs> and um, I recently had the opportunity to tattoo a piece of corn, a cornstalk. And it was just so magical because you could feel... <laughs> like this might sound a little weird but like corn stepped into the room <laughs> and I mean like not corn the band that would be really cool too but like corn the spirit was there yes. and with us and facilitating our conversation and 
charging it so beautifully. So like, even despite my diet changing, like having such a magical relationship with a plant, um, it really just changes the way that you think about things and the way that you relate to your environment. Um, and that, that felt very mirrored by my client as well. We talked about that pretty explicitly. Um, some other things that have been really freaking awesome is the fact that body art is something that within these lineages of the past, like it's not always monetized. It's often something that is highly respected and offered as a, as a healing service, as an alternative medicine rather than a luxury. Um, so the people who offer it are treated really well as they should be, as we should be. And, um, being that it wasn't always monetized, but people were still being treated really well, these bartering systems would develop based off of body art. And that's something that I really enjoy doing too. Obviously, like I'm a human being that lives in a fascist capitalist society. So I need money <laughs> and I deserve for my craft to be honored in that way. Um, but bartering and trading and mutual aid through tattooing has been freaking great. Like some of my favorite ritual tools um, have come out of these exchanges. I have traded for rent for housing. Um, I know people who have traded for therapy and even like hearing a body artist tell me that I'm just like, ah! Um, and I think that weird, weird parallel, but it, it's kind of similar to like the cannabis market. <laughs> I feel like the way that cannabis has, um, you know, warmed the hearts of many people is that it's not always just based off of cash, you know, like you, you pass it around in a circle. It teaches you to share. And um, in a similar way, I feel like tattooing, imprinting can take the autonomy back from the concept of exchange because many of us have really intense wounds around finances. Um, so that being said, being somebody who has also had some intense wounds around finances. It's been a learning experience for that particular transformation to fully come to fruition within myself. Um, also, because I really try to consider like the injustices of class systems um, and like be able to accommodate and adapt as is needed. Um, but through that, through that balancing out, um, it's been really enjoyable to have these moments of like challenging that system that's falling apart and will probably never repair itself in the way that we need it to unless we actively start creating alternatives. Um, I've been able to support some causes that 
mean a lot to me that mean a lot to other people and have some really <laughs> magical exchanges as well just through that simply happening at all um you you've been to some of them you know you know yeah. how would how would you not that they're the only way that this has come out of sacred pokes um which is what I call my tattooing practice. But how would you describe uh, one of the sacred pokes benefits? Um, I would say it's very open, super, like, I, I wouldn't call it just, it's definitely intimate. It's family friendly. There's people of all ages there. There's um, such a, dynamic group of people that I've seen there or met there. Um, yeah, it's just been very connecting, I think has been a big one because I remember, and I think I maybe only made it to one, which is crazy. And now that we're in quarantine, I'm like, note to self, go to more things when stuff is open. Um, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, I remember there was just all this food, there was good live music. Um, and people just, it was just very safe. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I try to be really specific about the food and the music too. Um, Cause that's also how many traditional rituals of body art were held. Like you'd have somebody who'd be going under the needle, then you'd have the artist who would be doing the main body of the work you might have somebody who is an apprentice or an assistant like stretching the skin or getting them water or something like that but then the person who's getting tattooed their whole family would be around they'd be hanging out and singing and then they'd all like eat together after um mm. which is foundational in many different lineages um but specifically Polynesian and Filipino. Um, tattooing creations and communities were built in that way. And to me, that translates as something that's like really speaking to the heart of the community because it's actively going into this deep, dark, painful state in order to create something beautiful that touches everybody everybody can be a part of the singing everybody can be there and dance or comfort the person everybody can participate and have this delicious food that was made with love and you know, hear people talk about their passions and their joys um so even in one person participating in an imprint ritual there's such a ripple around that so i feel like that's one of the the main transformations um, that I, I, I just really love to see. Like it always fills me so dearly. Yeah, that's, it, it's really cool to hear that because that's definitely um, where the magic is at. That's how it feels. That's how it's definitely received. The intention is, is happening. And it's also interesting, I want to dive into 
this connection to plants because you said something really cool and that's <laughs> using um, plant-based dyes. So what's that like? Because that seems like it's like an alchemic sort of thing almost. Yes. Um, and this is something that I heavily research, but I also really rely on my genetic memory and um, the mentors that I've had to like guide me through this because the way that most tattoo ink is presented is just kind of like here it's the best like traditional crappy marketing that's just like bright colors bald lines it's not toxic and then you know six months later it's like oh wait it was toxic we're gonna recall this off the shelves <laughs> after mm. a bunch of artists already bought it so while I do use um, manufactured ink a decent amount of the time, I'm really specific about which ones that I choose because I don't want to fuck with no bullshit, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> and a couple of years ago, um, I started making my own ink as I was inspired by somebody who did a massive hand-poked piece on me. Um, that no longer tattoos, and um, their practice is amazing to this day still. Victoria B. Wickler, I highly recommend. Y'all look her up. Um, but she did this massive, like, biological womb-to-heart connection tattoo on my pelvis to sternum, and it took, like, eight hours. It was very painful, uh, but super worth it. And she had made her own ink. And about a year after that, I started experimenting with what recipes felt right for me. Mm -hmm. um, the ingredients that I used, there were a couple of different things that I wanted to integrate because they were already medicines that I used in my practice. Um, so... Henceforth, I had a couple trial runs on myself, and that was more of, like, a clay-based ink, um, but now I'm actually transitioning my ink formula, because for me, I eventually want to be able to, like, give this to other, to other artists so they know that it was made by an herbalist and is safe and is something that is genuinely sustainable rather than like factory created and maybe toxic <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and stores in your lymph nodes for the rest of your life. Uh, but I want to really perfect that. So within my apothecary opening, which is about two years ago now, I really started to like change the way that I was working with the natural medicines that were available to me. Um, beforehand, I did a lot of like supplements. I worked a lot with different kinds of like clays and charcoals, even outside of tattoo ink. Um, and then every now and again, I'd have like a tincture or I have always been really passionate about tea. <laughs> um, but it, it was a lot more like granule materials um 
lots of like black walnut hull, that type of thing. And that was my basis. But I've transitioned a little bit out of um, relying on like very dense, grainy types of medicines, even just like as an, as an herbalist, as an oil painter, um, which was like my, felt like that's when I really fully stepped into artistry was when I learned to oil paint as a young teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, that being like very much the way that my, my paint strokes the canvas of life. It feels a lot more aligned for me to use this system. Um, and I'm really excited because it is still just in like formation stages, but once it hits the market, I'm really excited to see the reaction. Uh, I think, I think it'll be, an additional way that people start to like rethink what they're putting into their bodies and why and what kind of intention can be infused. Um, I think a really good example for uh, an organization or a company that uh, has that kind of approach is Fat in the Moon, which is a cosmetics company that is run by herbalists. And every single pigment or every single product has the herbal formula that it needs to work, but they also market it with like the plant magic that's been infused in it. Like, okay, here's this, but we also threw some yarrow in there for your boundaries and for stepping into your confidence and having that like adaptation to the way that people think about a beauty product. I, I aim to do something kind of similar with tattooing and I'll probably use a different model for that <laughs> and mm-hmm. do it in my own way, but they're a really magnificent example. That's really remarkable. That kind of does create an added layer because there is um, a certain level of consci- consciousness going on right now where people are aware of like organic food is one that is obvious that I remember my mom used to scoff at me for buying organic strawberries because they're more expensive. Like, why would I even do that? But now it's like, uh, why would you buy non-organic strawberries? Are you crazy? Like, you know, the, the mentality is changing. So there is that intentionality that's really, really important. And there is this level of, well, you don't want, you know, chemicals in your face cream and things like that, but there's added layers to, to that where it's like, it's not even just like, oh, you don't want to use this high chemical thing that can harm you. Mm -hmm. You want to use something that can age you, that can help you and support you. And so it's more that added layer of intentionality that I think is the next evolution in this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and I was really fortunate to be trained. Um, I, I went to cosmetology school for a while and then I dropped out, but I, by the time that I had started tattooing, I was working in the professional makeup industry and <laughs> uh, little did I know, I guess some part of me knew, uh, 
I like to craft a bit more permanent. <laughs> but it was a really good template for me to start thinking about like the way that we present ourselves and how that allows us to express and what the meanings behind our chosen appearance can be. So turning that into, okay, not only how you can relate to the product and the packaging, but also to the intention and also to the experience and also to the ingredients, like that allows people to feel so much more supported in the identity that they already have because they don't feel like they're trying to replace themselves with an object or with an event or an experience or a novelty. It's like this addition, this adornment is going to evoke more of me. And that's fucking rad. <laughs> that's awesome. That's beautiful. I feel like as we've talked, you've, you have so many areas of inspiration, whether it's the herbalism, it's the painting, the tattooing, the writing. With that said, I would love for you to share where everyone can find you, the ebook and your music and everything else that you do. Beautiful. So you can find my pretty much everything at sacredcanvas.org. I don't really use social media too much, uh, but you can find me on Twitter at Prophecy Canvas, on Instagram at the same handle, or for my tattooing at Sacred Pokes. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at sacredpokes at sign protonmail.com. And um, I would just be really happy to hear from anybody who showed up here and um, wants to learn more. I have a lot of different offerings, which I'm still starting to list onto Sacred Canvas, uh, mm -hmm. as that is a new venture for me as well. And for my music, I actually have more than one project. So. Right now, I have a bit of a Beats page that I mentioned before uh, that has some like demos and some meditation music, that kind of thing, at Eden, E-E-D-E-N, music.bandcamp.com. Uh, my solo project is evolving at the moment, too, into what is now going to be titled Eden and the Elder. I have been working for the last two and three years on a record, again, about my experiences as a survivor, that means a lot to me. Um, so we're in the process of recording it right now, and Eden the Elder will then have their chance to shine. But my band actually just released uh, our first EP only a couple days ago. So you can find that at knifefriend.bandcamp.com. And we're also starting to write another record. That EP is called Cease the Cycle. So stay tuned. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eden. Thank you for being here and sharing with us today. Of course. <laughs>